Yes, hello there. How are you doing, guys? Thanks for tuning in to the NTT20 Monday podcast, brought to you by the Skybet EFL Rewards app. I'm Ali Maxwell on the line with me today. As ever, George Ellick. George, the EFL Rewards app from Skybet is a must-have for EFL fans. Yeah, absolutely. It, it really is. And it kind of feels like since we last spoke about the app, given the kind of good news around the world with regards to vaccines and the like, the prospect of actually going to games on a Saturday or on a Tuesday evening feels that little bit closer. Mm. Fingers crossed that is the case. But in the meantime, you can still use the Skybet EFL Rewards app to check in ahead of a game. So, for example, tomorrow night, it's going to be Oxford against Crew at seven o'clock. I'll be watching on iFollow and before the game starts I will check in to say that I'm watching the game as an Oxford fan and that will leave me with the chance of winning free match passes to watch on iFollow or even possibly a signed shirt as well so you know it's 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 difficult at the moment not going to games I'm missing it myself uh, I don't really like how sometimes you know after a game finishes you close your laptop and then the match day experience is over two seconds after the final whistle mm-hmm. but using the Skybet EFL rewards out. There is a chance to to get something back for your for your fandom, and uh, and that is everything we need at the moment. Spot on. Not just that, but you can pit your wits against fellow EFL fans with the predictor on the app. Uh, it is as simple as it sounds. Predicting the results of the twelve league games uh, in the division that your club plays in and prizes for the winners. No surprises there, and it's worth playing. Certainly in the next few weeks ahead of. A big reveal in December, the Skybet EFL Rewards app predictor is about to get very interesting indeed. So get your eye in and play uh, this week. That is the Skybet EFL Rewards app. Download it for free for a chance to win prizes when checking into games, when playing the predictor. Happy days. We thank them for their sponsorship of the podcast. And on the pod today... I think it's time for a Q&A pod, a sort of pick and mix style. You guys have sent in some great questions. We've got a lot to get our teeth stuck into, the sorts of questions that we don't normally tackle on the pod. So um, we are going to get stuck into those shortly. But first, we're going to start with some manager chat, because as always, it, it seems international break equals managerial departures uh, in all of the divisions and entries as well. So let's start with one of them. Tony Pulis is the new manager of Sheffield Wednesday, George Gary Monk was turfed out at the start of last week. We spoke to Nancy Frostick about that on the Totally Football League show Extra Time back end of last week. So we're just going to focus on Pulis today. He's been appointed Sheffield Wednesday, are 23rd in the league with six points from 11 games. That's having had six deducted, of course. So on the pitch, they've earned 12 from their 11 games. Uh, they're two points away from Coventry, who are just outside the relegation zone. And they've got 35 games to get out of it with Tony Pulis in charge. What do you make of that appointment by Mr. Chanziri? I don't really know what to make of it, if I'm going to be honest with you. Um, you know, it, it's it's a bit of a coup, probably. You've got a manager in Tony Pulis who, whose track record at clubs is generally pretty good. Um, you know, it comes caveated with a certain style of football. That is a concern because generally the relationships between Tony Pulis and the fans of the club that he managed seem to tail off pretty alarmingly by the time he leaves the club, maybe with the exception of Stoke, where he managed, you know, nearly 500 league games over two periods of of big success. But you look at what happened at Borough, at West Brom as well. I think the fans mainly were, were pretty tired of what they saw. And especially when you think back to what happened at Borough, where, you know, a pretty... um 
a, a bad kind of drop off in terms of form towards the end of the second season meant that he he then was moved on for Jonathan Woodgate. And there was so much made about the changing of the style of play because the fans were so disillusioned with, with what they saw. So, you know, there, there are two ways of looking at this. Tony Pulis, in terms of, of getting results, um, is more likely to do what is needed in order to keep Sheffield Wednesday up than Gary Monk was. So in that respect, you have to say it's a positive move. However, A, Pulis is not going to come cheap. B, unlike somebody like Neil Warnock, who's that little bit older, he's not coming in here to do a firefighting job and move on at the end of the season or anything like that. This is an appointment that Pulis will see as being you know, something of a project to try and get Sheffield Wednesday back towards the top of the championship. And for that reason, it's just a bit unimaginative. We, we can basically already see how this is going to end. And it's very unlikely, in my view, that this is going to be something that, that kind of culminates in um, days in the sun for Sheffield Wednesday back in the Premier League. Um, I think there are opportunities now, and there are so many good managers out there to have maybe have maybe looked to recruit somebody who was on an upward career trajectory. Um, you know, you look at the way that you recruit managers, it should be similar to the way you recruit players. You should look to find somebody whose value is hasn't necessarily been um, exhausted yet, who is showing enough at another level. I mean, it, it's something I, spoke, I, I tweeted about last week. I, I don't see, using Ryan Lowe as an example, I don't really see why appointing a manager whose clear career trajectory is upwards is seen as such a risk when the kind of recent, even though they're different ages and have different philosophies, if you look at Tony Pulis and Gary Monk's last six seasons, it's fairly similar. They go into championship jobs, they leave championship jobs, maybe with a modicum of success here and there, but nothing that's that, that's resulting in them being consistent Premier League managers. So I, I think it's a bit of an opportunity missed. I, I disagree with the idea that a lack of championship experience makes it a risk. People keep talking about Nathan Jones as if one manager coming up from League One and struggling at a kind of a bigger club in the championship means that others are destined to fail. I mean, each case is, has to be taken but on a case-by-case basis on, on, on circumstances. So uh, I, I think it, I think Sheffield Wednesday are more likely to stay up now than they were before Gary Monk was sacked. Yeah. That will be enough for the majority of fans and understandably so. But at the same, you know, I, I, I don't think I don't think it's going to be long until they're back in the same situation looking for another manager again. Something that's been growing in my mind recently on this note, and not specifically to Pulis, but um, thinking about a lot of the managers in the Championship, is there seem to be a lot of managers that can set up very well defensively, something we've discussed at length over the last month with the low goals per game. And, and that appeared, I think that was one of our main conclusions is if you just look at the list of managers and where their strengths are as managers and, and setting their teams up, maybe it's not hugely surprising that scoring is down. So with that, does Pulis, being a man who we expect to get Sheffield Wednesday bang at it defensively, does he have less of an influence in a division like this, in a low-scoring league? Or more of an influence? Because in a league where almost half of the division at the moment through 11 games, including Sheffield Wednesday, are conceding a goal a game or less, you know, good defensive records for half the division, are you then getting less bang for your defensive prowess buck, assuming that's what he brings? I think maybe you are going to get less bang for your buck. And I think that's something that, that is going to separate the teams towards the top 
from those in, in the middle of the table. And dare I say it, there'll be teams in the bottom half who have decent defensive records but can't score goals. It, it's Can you be a good attacking side? Can you set up a team to create chances consistently from more than one area, from more than one sort of type of play, if you will? That's what seems harder to do at the moment than setting up your team to be good defensively. That seems more impressive to me and, and I think more valuable as well at the moment uh, to have a, a team with more than one way to hurt you and not get really stuck against defensively sound teams, which we seem to have quite a lot of. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. Um, you know, as we say, we both think if we were pushed that Sheffield Wednesday will stay up with Pulis in charge. Doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that we are over the moon uh, if we were Wednesday fans at the appointment. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of things you have to consider when you when you change managers. Yeah. I mean, the, the one other thing I, I would just say on the kind of conundrum about going for proven experience or, or somebody who hasn't necessarily got that is <clears throat> somebody has to, well, one of two things have to happen for promising managers to get an opportunity. Either they have to take a team up. So if we're talking about Ryan Lowe here, either he has to take Plymouth into the championship or somebody's got to take that first risk, supposed risk, which I don't really think it is necessarily that. If, if you are going to ignore all managers who don't have previous championship experience, then the chances are that you are only looking at a pool of managers whose career has not stalled, but hasn't progressed beyond the level that you're currently at. It probably means you're going to be appointing somebody who's been sacked at the level that you're currently at. So in a way, you know, you're not going to get a second opportunity. Somebody like Ryan Lowe, if he is, let's say, a top-level championship coach, if he is a Premier League coach, if you don't make that first step, then you're never going to be able to get him because his career is going to develop past you before he's available. So uh, in my opinion, the risk lies in not looking to recruit someone with potential. The risk lies in becoming, and there are so many of these clubs in the championship who are constantly going through the same kind of managers, guys who've done it before, who probably experienced some success, who've experienced some failures. And is it any surprise that you don't really kick on? Is it any surprise that you don't progress forward as a football club if you're appointed managers who aren't progressing themselves? Mm. Let's move on to the next club in the championship who have parted company with a manager over the weekend, Derby County, at the bottom of the league, sacking Philip Koku. It was it was evidently a, a decision that was not taken lightly. Koku, clearly, on a just a purely human level, a personal level, was a very popular man at Derby County until the end. So it, it clearly came with a lot of sadness and it's hard not to feel some sympathy for him. Ryan Conway has written the big piece, as you can imagine, on The Athletic. And yeah, just reading some of the things that Koku experienced completely out of his control that you know didn't help, shall I say, does make you feel some sympathy. But their record of six points and only, as we keep banging on about, I think one goal from open play in 11 games this season... Um, I don't think either of us are too surprised. We've spoken a lot about Derby recently and, and what's been going wrong, too much chopping and changing, just couldn't get a foothold really. And, and, and seemingly, you know, I don't think either of us felt like things were going to turn around significantly. And I guess the question is, who next, George? Because Rooney's up for it and he's the current favourite. The second favourite is John Terry. Um, Danny Cowley, has his odds have shortened in the last day or so. What do you think about about what's next for Derby? I mean, we just spoke about Sheffield Wednesday, who are on the same amount of points as them, uh, yeah. if, if you include the deduction. Is it the same sort of conversation? <laughs> it, it, yeah, I mean, it has to be. Um, obviously, the risk involved in appointing either Rooney or Terry totally 
you know, dwarfs the risk involved in appointing somebody like Ryan Lowe, who's got, you know, 100 league management games under his belt already, irrespective of their of their status within the game and, and the, the, you know, the size of their name. Um, I, I think with Derby, any early movements, you know, I saw that Terry was like 50 to one in, into two to one or something, but given what's going on at the club with regards to the takeover, I mean, you'd have to assume that it was, it was the, uh, the new takeover group who've, made the decision to sack Koku and probably paid him off rather than rather than Mel Morris. I think Ryan suggested that it it was Mel Morris's decision mostly to to sack Koku. I'm sure with the with the green light from the new owners, yeah. but it, but it'll be them who choose the next manager, if you know yeah, what I mean. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I'd be interested to know who who's paid for it too because he's also said he's written a great piece about the new owners and kind of cutting through a lot of the noise about who they are and where they're from and who they're related to and mm. he's basically saying any any suggestion that they're gonna splash a load of cash and get Rafa Benitez or Eddie Howe are basically completely false from what we know and that's really not the way that's not what to expect from these new new owners you know straight away as they come into Derby so yeah but I mean I, I assume we don't know, but given that Rooney's been made into a manager, I'd be surprised if a there was a an announcement or any even any kind of process to appoint a, a different manager imminent. Mm. Um, and also, you'd expect this to be something of, of a trial for him. And I guess Liam Rossini as well. I, I, I'm led to believe that him and Rooney will be sort of co-managing in the interim stage. So this is going to be a trial for them, and we'll see how they get on. I, I'm generally normally pretty against making internal appointments after such a poor run because it's you know if you're going to attribute x amount of blame to philip koku then what percentage of that has to go alongside the coaching staff mm. I and mean, there has to be there has to be a, a portion of the blame that's certainly Rossini. so i i it still seems fairly um unclear what kind of coaching impact wayne rooney really's had at derby i think he's been a coach in, in name and he's probably attends coaching meetings but certainly in terms of training it sounds like he's very very much just been been a player so I mean has he, he has he had a positive impact as a player I haven't I really thought about this but as you're talking about that if he's not had a ton of coaching impact I'm not sure you could say really that he's had a hugely positive impact on the pitch in terms of his performances and how the team have played and the fact that he seemingly hasn't really nailed down a position and the fact that when things haven't been going well, he's constantly dropped deeper and deeper and deeper just to try and get on the ball. There's probably something to be said that Rooney's signing and everything that's come alongside it has not helped. But then, but, but, but at the same time, the the you know the the impact, the clear impact he had at the back end of last season, even though it, it led to nothing, um, you know that. His arrival coincided with such a good run of form last season, with him playing very well. I mean, it, it, it's hard to say. Uh, I don't think we can either credit him with with being a huge positive force now, or put any kind of real blame at his door. Um, yeah, I'm interested to know who they're going to appoint. I, I think it'll be a, a longish process. Um, I, I think that it's probably the right decision. It feels like this this season's just been kind of beyond awful, and even kind of during that good run last season, the, the data always looked like it was they were running just just a bit hot so um it's interesting to see now but as i say it just i'd be pretty unless rooney and rossini make a you know make a big difference um 
if Mel Morris was, was going to remain in charge, I think Rooney would, would probably have been appointed manager immediately, permanently. But with the new group coming in, I, I'm not so sure. Let's keep moving on. Let's go down to League One, talk about Ben Garner leaving Bristol Rovers. This was a bit of a surprise to me, I must say. I've not seen too many tears being shed by the by the fan base. Um, I, I was surprised. They are not doing horrendously to my eyes. They're on 12 points from 11 games. They're in 18th place. Um, we had them 15th in pre-season. They're only one point away from 15th. There's only four points between 12th and 20th in League One. So you kind of have to group those in together rather than just looking at the league position. They're very much in that group. And the reason I was surprised is because that's what we expected. You know, I don't look at the squad and think, wow, they should be doing way better than that based on the strength of the squad. I look at it and think, as we said pre-season, there are a few interesting players that were recruited this summer that all being well and with the right person in charge, I think could develop and could form part of a good team at this level. But I wasn't expecting that this year, maybe not even next year. The, the, the things that we, do, that we don't know, that we can't really know from where we're sitting is, what was he like as a, as a man manager? Like, what was he like on the training ground? What was he like with the players? Did they buy into what he was saying? Did they buy into what he was asking them to do? Did they like him? Were those players that I've talked about that I think could be interesting players in a year or two, were they developing with the game time that they were being given? If the answers are no, then you know there's a, there's a character issue, there's a personality clash, and that's a bit of an issue for a manager and hard to get past. But if he's doing... It depends what the remit was, doesn't it? It always does. That's why all cases are, are individual and why it can be difficult to really get to the heart of it. If he's doing most of the things you asked him to do, but not getting short-term results or whatever you consider to be good or acceptable short-term results, then I think you give him a bit more time, personally. Like, the results have been not great, but not horrific. The underlying numbers are not great. They're not horrific, but as we know, it's four down from League One. You can't really risk getting sucked in. But yeah, I'm just a, I'm a little bit surprised. Everything that happened over the summer indicated, even though we had a terrible record second half of last season... We are buying into what he's doing. He's been in the building for a few months. We we, we should know about him by now. And that, and we are seemingly happy to recruit a whole new squad for Ben Garner to take forward. So it's, I don't think it reflects very well, put it this way, on the hierarchy that after 11 games, he's gone and, and clearly doesn't reflect too well on, on Garner, a man who, as we said pre-season, like, we didn't know. We didn't know for sure if he was a good manager or a bad manager or, or where he was because we hadn't seen enough from him yet. So... I mean, we got we got a few questions about this. Uh, one from Bestie said, "Who should Bristol Rovers go for next, and how difficult will it be for a new manager to come into a squad with so many new players brought in?" Um, what are your thoughts at, on on this Bristol Rovers situation, George? In terms of who I think they should bring in, it it's pretty hard to kind of come up with a name that I think looks like a standout candidate. Mm. To be honest. Um, and it seems like it might be by the by anyway, given that, you know, looking at the odds, Tommy Widrington, who was the head of recruitment. So you, you talk about, you know, they're happy to build a squad for, for Ben Garner. Well, you'd assume that Widrington would have had a fair bit of, you know, input in building that squad. So maybe that kind of makes sense. I mean, there's a couple below. I mean, Mike, Michael Flynn is 11 to 4 second favourite. I don't see why he would take the job at this stage. I think he is on the brink of being able to take his current club to the same level as Bristol Rovers. And we've seen him linked with other clubs that would be more attractive in my personal point of view. So 
I mean, Tisdale's the other one who would make sense certainly geographically with his, you know, his 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 base from from Exeter for so long. Um, so that could work. But I, I kind of agree with you about Garner, where if they do replace Garner with an internal appointment, it just it just seems pretty short sighted. It feels like one of those sackings where because so much money has gone into um, rebuilding the squad over the summer and things haven't improved, then the board are kind of left with no, with only two options, either do nothing or sack the manager. That's, that's it. Um, there's been precious little to back up his reputation as a good coach into being a very good manager. Um, it's, you know, it's often said that good coaches often don't necessarily make the best managers. I don't know if I necessarily buy into that. I think, I think it's probably more circumstantial. Um, but for whatever reason, this hasn't really been working. I think the expectations that were built due to the transfer business always looked a bit toppy anyway. Um, I never really saw this being a side who looked capable of, of challenging towards the top end of League One. Do you know what's quite funny is that we we kind of said similar things in our pre-season predictions with Bristol Rovers and Lincoln. We almost like bunched them in together as the, the teams that were seemingly sort of overhauling, going younger taking what we considered to look like a pretty long-term approach and backing uh, a, a young manager that they thought could develop things. And I, I wonder a little bit whether Lincoln's success under Appleton so far this season might have played a bit of a part in this, where they've looked at that and gone, well, you know, if he can yeah. do it. <laughs> and I, you know, well, maybe, yeah. maybe it's wrong to, to make an equivalence there. Maybe it's wrong to compare the two. But that did strike me as an interesting one. I, li- I listened back to what we said about Bristol Rovers pre-season and I was kind of like, well... Lincoln haven't really helped here by going straight towards the top of the table. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that. I'm, I'm sure that's part of it. Um, I mean, I'd be interested to know what the expectations were of Ghana at the start of the season. Mm. But just in terms of, you know, internal processes, they've obviously had a look at what he's doing. You know, we, as, as people talking about this story, we have no idea what the relationship is like between the players and the manager. We have yeah. no idea what the players make of his coaching ability. We don't know what the relationship is between him and the board. So, and all of that is going to play such a massive part in decisions like this. You know, all we can look at is performances and results, whereas there's a lot more that goes into the mixing pot before making a decision like this. Um, for, for Ben Garner, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, he's not going to be top of many people's lists for managerial jobs now. So you'd probably expect him to take up his, take up a role um, in the backroom staff, as was his, uh, his career prior to this. Purely for content purposes, I'd like them to throw everything at Lee Johnson and see what he says. <laughs> because, look, you'd imagine Cook, Cowley and Lee Johnson all want championship jobs. And I'm just wondering how likely that is. I'd like to also just chuck a uh, friend of the pod, Paul Heckingbottom's name, into into the mix there and move on. Swindon have hired John Sheridan. George, are you feeling positive or would you be feeling positive if I may place you in the mindset of a Swindon Town fan? Uh, what do you think about them hiring John Sheridan after Richie Wellens' departure? It's a very short-term appointment, we're led to believe, which is basically the only jobs that John Sheridan does. I think it's his 11th or 12th job in the last five or six years, which is astonishing. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if if the plan here is get Sheridan in, get to the end of the season, stay up and use the next seven months to recruit a manager more in kind of the the line of, of Richie Wellens, somebody who they can invest in as a manager going forward, 
then it's fine. I think it's 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 pretty short sighted in terms of the playing style, mm. um, in terms of ambition as well. But very quickly this season, it's, it's become obvious that this Swindon Town is is not the same Swindon as we saw last season, and you know for that reason, maybe maybe it makes sense. Maybe they. I mean, he's a, he's a manager who's much maligned and and often as well by fans of clubs that he's managed, but. His record in terms of, of just kind of pure survival is, is pretty good. Um, you know, there was a time, what probably when we just started doing the podcast four or five years ago, where he was kind of seen as like basically as good as you could really get in like kind of League Two level. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's not as an Oxford fan, I'm, I'm pretty happy because I don't think they're getting much of a threat to um, above kind of 18th, 19th position. Um, but it, it, it kind of, I guess, makes some sense, especially now it's probably fairly cheap. Um, there's still a lot of uncertainty in football so yeah it, it could have been worse yeah it's not one for me this I'm not I'm not sure that I don't know what's happened in the last few years but whatever was behind the various Chez erections that you were referring to <laughs> just then seems to have, have worn off I'm sure there's plenty of circumstantial stuff that's gone on at his last few clubs he, he's not always been hugely popular with players with fans dare I say it with people within the game I'm not sure that Swindon's squad lends itself to really gritty defensive let's just desperately try and dig in and survive football and I'm not sure if his teams have ever played another way particularly so I'm not feeling particularly good about this one I must say I'm worried that it might all end in tears uh, in a, a matter of months but let's finish the manager chat on a positive George Nigel Clough goes into Mansfield and Mansfield start winning football matches starting with a win at Sunderland uh, which was obviously quite a nice touch for him not only beating a, a team in the league above in his first game in charge but also of course a uh, a place that has great family links for him with his with his father having played for Sunderland and with Clough himself having been born in Sunderland. That was impressive. Uh, a win midweek was something that happened as well. And then they beat Forest Green. And it was their first win of the season, Mansfield. Ten games mm. before he arrived. No league wins. Off the mark against one of the league's leaders or one of the top, well, one of the top three, certainly. Uh, a very strong start for uh, Mansfield and their fans who we've checked in with, thanks to the Skybet EFO Rewards app, they're seemingly pretty happy as well, as you can imagine. Yeah, of course. I mean, this is suddenly, it, it shows what impact having a <laughs> kind of a capable manager can have. Um, they were good value for their win. They put in a few good performances in different competitions, as you mentioned, in the first week of his arrival. And I think Mansfield fans can kind of breathe easy now. It was interesting to hear Clough say, you know, the season basically starts now. We have to completely forget everything that's happened before. And they, it looks like they've already put it behind them. Um, they're not going to get relegated this season. I, I can now say that. That wasn't necessarily the case before. It's just not, I, I just cannot see a way with Clough at the helm, they're going to end up in the bottom two. They're on 10 points through 12 games which is um, seven, nine points behind Colchester in seventh. So every reason why Clough will be looking at that is, is where to shoot. They've got whatever, 33, 34 games to make up a nine-point gap to get into the playoffs. That is easily attainable with their squad. Um, so of all of the, kind of the managerial chat, this is the one where, I mean, it's, it's born out of Mansfield getting it very, very wrong by appointing Graham Coughlin, but... You know, this is a, a marked upgrade 
like a huge upgrade and we're seeing the fruits of that straight away. I tell you what, I've got a lot of time for the Maris Charsley Lapsley midfield three, uh, purely from a, an energy and attacking quality perspective. I've no idea if it if it's very balanced necessarily, but all three of them have got a lot of quality going forward and are showing that Lapsley and Charsley on the score sheet in recent times. And uh, yeah, it's fair to say the Mansfield fans are feeling very positive about this one. And um, we checked in on them online, various quotes all very positive, all buzzing about the appointment and where it might take them. Um, has clearly lifted the whole club, said one fan. Uh, another has gone on to say, we have the talent to win League Two. We have a manager who could likely do great in the championship. And I also saw someone asking if it's too soon to rename the A38 from Mansfield to Burton, <laughs> Nigel Clough Way, which I thought was really nice. And Mansfield fans very happy. We're excited to see what Clough can do with this Stags side. Just a reminder that before your team plays a game in the EFL, you should be checking in using the Skybet EFL Rewards app. If you do check in, which you can do from anywhere, of course, we can't be going to games at the moment, so you can do it from your front room as you get ready to watch on iFollow, uh, then you'll be in with a chance of winning prizes, either iFollow match passes or signed shirts. You can play the predictor as well. Uh, make sure you download the Skybet EFL Rewards app. Now let's get into some of the questions we got sent, George. Something of a, an EFL lucky dip, something I've always got a real appetite for, and you guys did not disappoint. First and foremost, George, we are starting with a question from Chris, and the question is a tough one. Which of your pre-season 1-24 picks would you revise? One from each league, who would you change, and what to? Take it away. Well, I mean, we need to discuss the meaning of this question beforehand, and I've kind of approached it a fairly different way to you, because even though it's revising it, which means basically which one have you got the most wrong, I'm looking at my process. We often talk about managerial processes. I'm looking at where my process of where we got to was flawed. So in the championship, it has to be Borough, who I think we had kind of lower mid-table. Um, and I am still haunted by my attempt of myth-busting, being like, guys, it's not as simple as Neil Warnock just coming in and turning a really bad team into a really good one. Mm. Because yes, Ali, it is that simple. Um, in League One, it would be Donny, who, again, we had lower table, mid, lower, lower mid-table League One. I think I did Darren Moore a, a, a huge disservice by thinking there would be a big drop-off uh, in his second full season. Um, they are slick and effective. And whilst they, they're not even kind of miles above that position now, I think they're kind of 11th, I think, uh, with a couple of games in hand. I expect them certainly to be one of the teams battling in the playoffs. And then in League Two, it has to be Tranmere. Even though, even if they do pull this together, um, we had them second. I had them top when we did our, our individual ones. And I just completely ignored my own thing, which is do not be overly positive <laughs> on managers who have never managed before. Michael Jackson is no longer the manager there. Even if, even if they appoint somebody and they go on a merry run and they end up finishing second, I will still think it was a bad prediction on my part because the method was all wrong. I didn't think so deeply about this. I took Chris at face value and just wanted to look at ones to revise rather than adding in any sort of regret. Uh, and I'll, I'll agree revise with... Revise and regret. I'll agree. Sounds like, sounds like my time at school. I'll agree with... <laughs> I'll agree. 
I'll agree with Middlesbrough, but I'm going to put Oxford United into the equation. Uh, I know we had our reasons that they we had them third in the league, and they're currently certainly not third. I think it's fair to say, but I but I agree with Doncaster, so we'll go with that for League One. Um, We we both expect Oxford to move up the table to some extent, and in League Two, we thought Newport County would come fifteenth, and they Mm. are currently. Right there at the top. So I'm going to have to hold my hands up there. That is the one that I'd like to revise. Just before we get into our next question, George, and it's a cracker, by the way, a word (laughs) on our sponsors, Fanslide. We are having a lovely time being sponsored by Fanslide, the world's first in-play fantasy football game. And it's a busy week ahead for us. A busy week ahead. It was a busy weekend. The guys at Fanslide very kindly got the League 2 game up Bolton uh, Salford on Friday night and it was the first time thank god since we the we've been sponsored by them that I beat you which I was pretty relieved about you've always known your league two yeah exactly league two is a speciality and normally at this stage we would be like listen to the betting show on Thursday and we'll kind of preview the Friday game but they pulled out the bag again um, tonight, Monday Night Football, live on Sky. It might not be as glamorous as your classic MNFs, but I'll be watching, you'll be watching. It's Plymouth Argyle hosting Pompey, Ooh. two teams who I anticipate are both pretty good League One sides. Certainly a lot of attacking quality for Pompey and in Ryan Lowe, as people who've listened to this podcast might have been able to tell early on in the show, a manager <laughs> who I really, really rate, whose home form or home record generally has been really good. And the guys at Fanslide have got the game up tonight on the platform. We've, of course, then got England against Iceland on Wednesday and then on Friday, Coventry against Birmingham. So two proper EFL opportunities for those people listening to give Fanslide a go. The first ever in-play fantasy football app. All the feedback we've got so far has been so positive. Neither Ali or myself have done ourselves justice so far. I wouldn't say you challenged briefly last week before falling away pretty alarmingly to be honest um so it's up to us to try and try and battle it out but do join us uh, for tonight's game for wednesday and also for friday meat pie sausage roll come on england give us a goal Ooh, yes we got a corner that's what i'll be singing on wednesday night during the england iceland game playing fanslide plymouth pompey monday night join us on friday night as well coventry birmingham the fanslide app is free to download free to play there are cash prizes on certain fixtures as well Next question from George. Which players from each three divisions have surprised you most this season? Which players have you been most pleasantly surprised by is how I took this one. Uh, I'm going to start. In the championship, I got two uh, sort of different themes here. One of them is Ken Semmer of Watford. Uh, he has surprised me pleasantly because I didn't know very much about him. He probably was. He's probably not the player that I assumed he was when I first saw him either. And what he has been is, to my eyes, Watford's best player over the course of the 11 games so far, although Saar has obviously been excellent recently and Joel Pedro's had some great performances as well. Semmer's just, he just constantly gets to the byline and produces good delivery, whether it's aerial crosses or low cutbacks. He's been such a creative force for them and they haven't had too many of them. And I just love how he doesn't, he doesn't do many tricks. He doesn't do any flicks or skills, but he constantly <laughs> beats his man down the outside and delivers good quality. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. And my other one in the championship is Paddy McNair uh, of Middlesbrough. Nice. Partly because he's obviously been at the level for a while now. And although he's always been a, a good player, I don't think we've ever spoken about him on this pod as being um, like massively impressing us, shall we say. But I have to say that he is definitely doing that now. And... 
we should always be wary of the fact that any Neil Warnock defender who's playing for a team that is barely conceding a goal uh, is going to have their stock rise, uh, basically thanks to Uncle Neil, because uh, that's what he tends to do with his teams. But it's just, it's McNair's dynamism, even as a centre-back, is his quality on the ball, which we see probably more when he plays for Northern Ireland, where he plays as like a galloping advanced eight or number 10 sometimes, as more of an attacking threat. Just a really good all-round player who's currently part of the, the best defence in the league. So, um, yeah, I like Paddy McNair a lot. He also whips in an unbelievable cross. Like, genuinely, his crossing from deep, you know, it's right up there in this in this league, which is probably not something he gets much credit for outside of the, mm. the Borough fan base. So yeah, Ken Semmer and Paddy McNair for me in the champ. What about you? I've got a few in the championship. I've got three. Um, one, for any regular listeners to the podcast over the last couple of weeks will not be surprised, but I did not think that Adebayo Akinfenwa would be um, a, a particularly handy championship player. And even though he hasn't played very many games, he has definitely been that. So I've been surprised by how Bayo's taken to this level at his age. Um, Harry Toffolo is another interesting one who nice. has been superb for Huddersfield playing that kind of advanced left wing back role. And given that he was brought in from Lincoln by the Cowleys who who managed him there, it often feels like with these ones, when you've got a manager who goes back to their old club, especially lower down the leagues and brings a player up with him and then moves on, quite often their time at the club is kind of stunted. But if anything, Toffolo has, has massively kicked on this season. Uh, and it's great to see. It looks like he's really enjoying the, the change of style, the change of system that Corbran has implemented. And I'd guess probably in the summer, Huddersfield fans and Corbran himself would have looked at that position as being one that they needed to improve on, look for new personnel, whereas now, certainly not the case. He must be one of the first names on the team sheet. And Ben Brereton is the final one um, at Blackburn, who is a player that despite kind of the hype, both at Forest and now at Blackburn, and he, and he is still very young. I've, I've never been particularly enamoured with Brereton. But he, you know, we, we've spoken a lot about, you know, Adam Armstrong and other players in this Blackburn team who have been crucial to the way that they've started the season and the attacking football they play. But Brereton's been at the heart of that throughout as well. Offers, you know, a combination of quality and physicality. Um, he has developed quickly this season and I didn't really see that coming. So they're my three in the championship. Nice. Uh, League One? League One, I've got one positive one and one negative one. Oh, um, nice. I'll do, I mean, I feel bad now because I, I thought when I started making my list, I'd do like a couple of negatives and I've actually ended up only doing one. So I feel bad for saying it. And he's also a Swindon player, so I feel even worse because it's just going to sound like absolute bias. Is it but, um, Brett the Hitman Pittman? Yeah, it is. It is. And I think it's only fair because I've, you know, it's not often that I criticise Kenny Jacket, especially not recently, but um, I've been saying for the last like, two years like I can't believe that Pittman can't get a game at, at Pompey I've even spoken to people in the past at Oxford being like why don't we sign Brett Pittman because um, what what is he doing sitting on the bench in League One but he has looked slow and cumbersome and not the player that he was a few years ago so that is a negative surprise although maybe it's a positive because you know Swindon are rivals so that's okay but the big the big positive for me in League One is George Honeyman um, yeah. at Hull because I wasn't a massive fan of his in that Sunderland team under Jack Ross. Obviously, his kind of enthusiasm, exuberance is is clear to see on the pitch. Um, but 
I never really thought there was a great deal of quality there. I didn't really think that he was somebody who deserved to move up into the championship at the time. But he's been one of the best players in League One this season. Yeah. And, you know, whilst it might be um, Keen Lewis Potter, who makes most of the headlines on Malik Wilkes at Hull, his performances in the middle of the pitch, his set-piece delivery as well, is has been exceptional. He is somebody who I didn't anticipate to be not only one of Hull's best players, but one of the league's best players. And, and that is what he's been. In League One, I've gone with Joe Piggott. It's mainly down to to his output, isn't it? First 11 games, he's got six goals and four assists for a Wimbledon side who over the last few years have struggled for goals and have struggled probably for an individual attacking star. Uh, That is just an unbelievable return to start the season. He's doing everything that you want your striker to do. He's like properly leading from the front as well. He's a leader in this side. He's been absolutely magnificent. I don't for a minute think that his current return of basically, well, what is it, 10 goals and assists combined in 11 games. I don't think that's going to sustain itself over the course of the season, but it's been Mm. a brilliant start. And, you know, for someone who's been knocking around for quite a long time, but never really, uh, never really produced, he obviously got 15 goals in the 2018-19 season. That was a good return, but uh, it's great to see him him really establish himself now as a, a really good complete forward in the League One. And Joe Ward of Peterborough, we've spoken about him a few times just because Posher are known for having a lot of attacking threats and very rarely had we ever mentioned Joe Ward as one of them. Uh, in fact, he'd be, as I've said before, one of the players who at the start of the season you thought maybe his place would be somewhat yeah. under threat. Uh, and instead, his versatility, being able to play either as a right wing back or as a, a proper right winger who delivers good quality and is a goal threat, has been huge for, for Posh in their early uh, good start to the season. So he has really pleasantly surprised me. In League Two... I'm just calling it the rebrand league for for the purposes of this because Giovanni Brown... Yeah, I know who you're going to say, surely, as well. But yeah, carry on. Giovanni Brown has gone from a silky number 10 to Edinson Giovanni. (laughs) Oh, my God. There's so much to be said for that. He's obviously... He's got six six in his last three, but his finishing is just unerringly accurate. He's just stroking it into the far corner. He's got a couple of headers as well. Not what you'd expect from a from a silky playmaker. And then obviously John Mellish as well, who... I mean, I mean he's got to be the one. I mean, just, if you're going to make a list of, of surprises in the AFL, he's he's top of it in the last 30 years, I think. Exactly. He's gone from a, a, a League Two defender that I'm not sure we'd ever mentioned on the pod before <laughs> to uh, the League Two Lampard. And uh, he's just a constant threat. And it's pretty exciting. So, yeah, John Mellish and, and Giovanni Brown for me. And just shout out to Dolan as well, just to, just to complete the rebrand league, because that's what's happening in League Two. Dolan's gone from centre midfielder to to the linchpin at the heart of Mike Flynn's ball-playing Newport County at the at the heart of defence. So, yeah, those are mine in League Two. Anything to offer? Well, I think um, even though the goals have somewhat dried up a little bit, I think Paul Mullen being the leading goal scorer in Europe for a time means that he probably deserves to be on this, uh, on this list. When you, you put know, it like that. He'd never hit double figures in his career and he did it after like seven games. So that was quite exciting. And, and I guess... If we're going to talk about him, probably we have to now put Joe Ironside in the same in, in the same bracket because Cambridge are probably the surprise packages and it's Ironside and, and Mullen playing up top who are kind of making it happen. He's now got seven and 12. Um, so two guys who are, who are being prolific for the same team at the same time who haven't ever been prolific in the EFL before. Um, so they're my other two to, to add. But Mellish was the one. On my notes, Mellish is in bold in capital letters. So... That tells you what he's—he's he's got to be the biggest surprise. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, next up, 
Favourite EFL goal or goals of the season from Mark Rippey. This one was, I'm going to go for Marcus Harness's hat-trick goal yes, uh, against that as well. Burton. Just as like, it, it actually does get better every time I watch it. The little backheel touch into space, the dink over the unrushing goalkeeper. The fact it was for his hat-trick, absolutely magnificent. What a lovely player and what a good season he's having. I also just wanted to shout out Callum Camps because... I can't necessarily pick one of his goals. He's got six. Mm. He's got six in all comms. And I mean, they are, it's just an array of magnificent and quite inventive strikes from range as well. Two of them on the weekend. And then from a team perspective, we've mentioned it before, but Crewe and Huddersfield have both scored some beautiful flowing moves uh, in transition. And uh, I really enjoy a bit of that. So Crewe and Huddersfield, shout out Callum Camps, but Harness's hat-trick goal uh, is my pick for that one. Yeah, I've only got one to add. And it was your mate Ben Whiteman's goal against Lincoln on Halloween and I I was on Quest that evening and I said on TV that it was the goal of the season so far so it would be remiss of me not to bring it up now but it was so good because it's a combination of A, Whiteman winning the ball and starting the move move himself B, four like one touch passes in quick succession and then a ridiculous volley into the top corner. It kind of had every single different aspect of why a goal is good all wrapped into about five seconds. So I like that one a lot. And those two goals, Harnesses and Whiteman's, were up or are up for uh, League One Goal of the Month up against each other. I mean, I had to abstain on voting for that one. It was like, it's like (laughs) like choosing your favourite child, I I imagine, as someone who doesn't have any. Um, Just magnificent, both of them. Felix asks, favourite Prem loanies in each of the three divisions? Well, there's plenty of them. Uh, I'll rattle through mine. Mark Gehi in the championship. I think he's already being taken for granted, Gehi, because partly because he's on loan from Chelsea and Chelsea loanies have been, well, at the forefront of championship football for the last few years. I think there's just an assumption that they're all absolutely brilliant, but there shouldn't be. It's still amazing what he's doing. He is a 20-year-old defender. He doesn't turn 21 until after this season. If you look across all three leagues, there are very few sub-21-year-old players playing centre-back Uh, at a senior level and it's just it's the fact that he carries himself like he's played 500 games he's so assured his recovery speed is unbelievable Um, he's very comfortable on the ball as well Uh, it might be a bit boring picking a Chelsea loanee but I just think he's magnificent I really enjoy watching him play he's obviously alongside another 20 year old in Cabango and they are forming one of the better defences in the championship so Gwehi in in the champ for me Matt Smith uh, at Swindon from Arsenal uh, in League One for me. He's just doing everything in, in the heart of midfield. He's averaging a lot of passes per game. He can be a creative passer. He can mix it, although he's not the biggest. Uh, and he's been a goal threat as well. Obviously scored the equaliser from the edge of the box on the weekend. And I know that Arsenal fans have a lot of high hopes for him. And I know that Swindon fans are pretty obsessed with him already. So <laughs> I, think, I think he's one of those who, by the, who, who I think for those who are watching Swindon quite closely, are a bit like, wow, okay, he should probably not be playing for us in League One, but we're glad that he is. And then in League Two, I think it I think it has to be Adam Phillips at, at Morecambe from Burnley. Again, like Gwehi, he was there at the end of last season, so maybe we're kind of taking him for granted because he's not shiny and new. But, I mean, he, he has been probably Morecambe's best player since he joined the club on loan. And for someone with so little experience in senior football, that is so impressive. He seems to drive them forward. Uh, he has scored a lot of goals, a lot of them penalties, of course, but uh, he just... I mean, I couldn't believe they got him back, put it that way. And he's mm. been uh, as good as I'd hoped. So Adam Phillips uh, on loan at Morecambe from Burnley is my answer there. Any extras for Felix? Um, i just done two. One in the champ, one in League One. Uh, Harvey Elliott, it's boring. It's too early to say, but he already looks 
like he's very good at football and he um you know for a player of his age to kind of slot into um Blackburn as he has done um it's more kind of I'm excited to see what's coming rather than necessarily already kind of crowing but he he has it very good and um and he should because of his caliber and his and his ability Josh Sims is the other one yeah. um on loan at Doncaster from Southampton who seems to be able to pretty much score the same goal every time the league one iron robin just coming inside and trying trying to bend the board into the far corner um but it works quite a lot and he's he's clearly someone with the technical ability and the pace to be very dangerous in league one okay next up from jonesy a player from each position goalkeeper defender midfield forward in each efl division that you think can go on and play for england and why jonesy I... that's a whole podcast <laughs> yeah jonesy <laughs> There's nothing wrong with being demanding, but that is too demanding for us uh, as part of this pod. But we have, we're, we're going to give you some, that's for sure. We're probably not going to give you a player from each position in all three divisions. <laughs> but, I mean, look, uh, starting in the championship, goalkeeper-wise, I mean, it's so hard to say, isn't it? And goalkeepers are the ones where so much, you know, the, actually, I don't know if this is scientific, but it feels to me like the ones who end up playing for England quite often haven't really been part of... England youth teams and so it may be compared to other positions it's harder to track which ones are actually going to end up uh, at the very very top I mean at the moment in the youth teams you've got Balcom who plays for Brentford although he's, he's you know he's he's part of the B team and he's never played for them and he's been out on various loans none of them in the EFL maybe he's great I don't know but he plays for the England unders so does uh, Joseph Bursick who's on loan in League One at the moment and you know he he could be a good player as well. I guess the most likely goalkeeper in the championship is probably Freddie Woodman, just because yeah. he's very good. He's on loan from Newcastle. It's difficult to imagine that he ever dislodges Dubravka or Darlow, whoever it is in nets for, for them at the moment. But if he goes up with Swansea, let's say, as their loan goalkeeper, might he get another? Might they get him back like Dean Henderson at Sheffield United? Might he impress further? It's very possible. He's still only 23. Um, in in defence in the championship, I just picked Lloyd Kelly, Maybe a bit of a cop out because again he's part of the England under twenty one setup, but he's classic like modern mould, really athletic, good on the ball, can step forward into midfield, can play left centre back in a three, left centre back in a two, left back in a four, probably left wing back in a five at a push. I think he's got a lot of development still to come. So I'd say Kelly there. Uh, I've picked Josh De Silva from Brentford in midfield in the Championship. Plays for the under-21s, thriving for the under-21s in their last few games. Will probably star for the under-21s at the under-21 Euros this summer. Um, playing for a Brentford side where he'll either be playing in the Premier League next season with them or probably without them anyway at a fair, at a fair transfer price as well. And, you know, it doesn't take too long for players if they move to the right spot and if they keep playing Premier League football and they keep developing to, to start getting in that conversation. So I'd say De Silva. And then I've, I've gone with Tyrese Campbell as the attacking player just because he's only 20. There's still so much development to come, I think, um, for an attacking player who's still so young. You know, Watkins is 24, 25 already. So Tyrese Campbell's a long, you know, he's got a lot of time and the raw materials are pretty exciting. Um, you know, his finishing ability looks very good. I compared it to Jared Bowen the other day. Um, there aren't a huge amount of weaknesses in his game, put it that way. So that makes me pretty excited to see how he could build from here um, with more game time for Stoke under his belt, hopefully this season. Uh, who did you go with here, George? Talk me through it. 
So I, I've done a more scattergun approach. I've just written down 12 players in the whole EFL that I think play for England. Amazing. Okay. Um, and I'm just going to go through them with kind of one line after each. Um, <laughs> my first one is French. Um, but he, but he's he's eligible to play for England, and you know, given that Michael Elise is playing, or Elise, apparently we should say, uh, is playing for Reading in the Championship, and will be on the radar of many Premier League clubs, I'm sure. Um, I'd be amazed if he's not also on the radar of England, because he is, of course, eligible to play for England, as does his brother. So, I wouldn't say that he's a he's a lost cause for for England fans necessarily. Um, interesting, when, when I went and interviewed Kyle Robinson back in December last year, he told me that, in his opinion, Rob Dickey will play for England. I don't think there is any reason why he wouldn't. At 24 years old, he's still what? developing very quickly. And um, do you disagree? Did you just say there's no reason why Rob Dickey wouldn't play for England? There's no reason why he can't, no. Oh, right, he can't. Okay. No, there's no reason why, why he, you know, there's not like a I think a he's going to have to defend a lot better in the championship before he starts thinking he, about playing for England. He, he's somebody who will be a very attractive prospect for a Premier League side who look to play. Yeah. You know, he's somebody who, if, if you were looking at the championship for some value of a ball-playing centre-back, Dickie is certainly going to be up there. And, and his defensive ability, I mean, he's developing very quickly, but we often see with, with centre-backs, you know, 24 is very, very young. Mm. You know, he's still got four years, for example, to get to the, to the age of kind of 28 where he could be a, a regular Premier League footballer. Um, so, you know, and, and he's improved so much in the last two years. I still feel like he's, he's almost quite raw. Yeah. Okay. Um, no, fair enough. So Dickie is number two. I think Ivan Tony, um, is a very obvious one because he scores a lot of goals and he's, you know, going to be a Premier League footballer pretty soon. And I don't see why he'd stop scoring goals. And again, you, you see players like Callum Wilson. It doesn't matter that he's already kind of getting into his mid-20s. As soon as he gets into the Premier League and starts doing that, as I think we're probably going to see with, with Ollie Watkins in the next two or three months and with Patrick Bamford, as soon as strikers start scoring goals in the Premier League, they get a call up. And, and I'd, I'd be surprised if he doesn't. I've got Woodman as well. Um, Adam Armstrong at 23 is a player who, you know, he's come through. He's played a lot of England youth games. Um, the progression we're seeing this season, he's another guy who will be attracting Premier League clubs very soon and is destined to play at that level. And if he does, then there's no reason why he can't get a chance. Although maybe his style of play doesn't quite fit as well because you wouldn't really want him playing as a lone striker. And it seems very unlikely that England, well, for, for an England side at least, um, would, would want to ditch that shape given the wide players at their disposal. I've got De Silva as well. Um, I've got Gwehi. The one I think is maybe the most interesting and probably if I was to put a bet on the one I would like, it's Rico Henry because England don't have any left backs and he's seriously good and he's 23. Um, so I kind of ticks all the boxes there. Um, he's somebody again, who I think as soon as he's playing in the Premier League will quite quickly become such an obvious candidate to, to be at least in the squad. Um, helps as well. He can play on the right side if needed. Um, he's great going forward. He's good defensively. Uh, the two in League One, one of them kind of follows the same thinking with Harry Pickering. He's at 21 years old. You know, he's a left back who will not be playing in League One for too long. Um, and it may not happen anytime soon. But if he carries on his development as he is at the moment, um, then there's no reason why he won't move up. And, and Keen Lewis Potter, the other, but it's, it's too early to say, I think, with him. But he's certainly somebody who, given his, his tender years, has the potential to go all the way. I wanted to find a League 2 one, and this probably took me longer than anything else I did preparing for this podcast. Um, but I guess, you know, you're looking at players who are playing a lot of first-team football, who are very young, 
who are being picked because of their technical ability rather than the physical. And in Rhys Staunton, Bradford have a player who's 18 years old. He's starting every week. He's versatile in that he can play a fullback, a centre-back in holding midfield. And he's so comfortable on the ball. And the kind of the one area that Bradford fans criticise Staunton is because of his, you know, his willingness to play means he makes a fair few mistakes. You'd expect that from somebody at 18. Um, you know, the, I think Bradford fans expect to make a fair few quid on it, off his sale. Um, and, you know, at 18 years old, where's he going to be playing in three or four years? Could be very high. It's a punt, but of all the League Two lads, I mean, that seemed to be the most obvious to me. No, I, I actually had Staunton on my list alongside Matty Pollock of Grimsby, who's in a similar situation, yeah. very young and, and playing games at the heart of Grimsby Town's defence. And I don't think either of us are saying these players are definitively good enough one day to play in the Premier League because we neither of us have seen them up close and personal enough to know that. But just generally, centre-backs at their age playing week in, week out in League Two is the first thing that sort of piques your interest. Um, Jared Branthwaite is a, someone I'll just hold up as an example of why we might say this. Branthwaite started playing for Carlisle in the first half of last season, age 17. A tall centre-back, um, both-footed, certainly had a passing range. It wasn't always that accurate, but he was clearly a very talented young centre-back. And after 10 games... Everton bought him and what chance Branthwaite who's now played for Everton a few times at the end of last season and is clearly highly rated and clearly has a lot of tools and is so young still what what chance he plays for England at some point well you wouldn't be shocked that a young centre-back at Everton would one day be good enough to play for for England you know there's a good chance when he was at Carlisle if I'd said to you do you think Jared Branthwaite would play for England you'd you'd have gone, you'd have probably mm. automatically gone like, oh, come on, mate, like probably not. But all that's changed was the club that he was at. Everton yeah. bought him. He's not the different player than he was at Carlisle. So who knows? Staunton and, and Pollock are in, you know, they're in an interesting spot. And that, you know, the more games these guys play this season, the more likely it is that they will be bought by a team towards the top end of the, of the pyramid. Okay, great friend of the pod, uh, Jay of Blades Analytic fame. He said... Which EFL club or clubs would you most like to be sporting director or manager of and why? Now, I have to admit, <laughs> I just deleted the manager segment because <laughs> there's a 0% chance that I'd ever be a manager of an EFL club. I reckon there's a 0.1% chance I could be the sporting director of an EFL club. I don't know. <laughs> a lot would have to happen from this point, but you can't rule it out. Um, so that's the way I look to this. Uh, who, did mm. you, who did you choose here? I mean... Oxford United. Yeah, it's been. A bit, uh, I, I would. I would genuinely like to be the sporting director one day. So, yes. But then that's boring because I support them. So I, I went for two others. One other one is very boring as well. It would be Leighton Orient because I live about ten minutes walk from the ground. So it would be quite handy to get into work. Um, but I think the, the obvious answer has to be Brentford. I, I think. I think ideally, I'd like to go to Brentford as assistant sporting director and just learn everything about everything that I need to know and then go to Oxford as sporting director and implement everything that I've learned so um yeah I, the way that they, their football club is run um is exactly the way that football club should be run in terms of everything from um you know performance analysis from recruitment uh for the way that they play um it's you know it was groundbreaking and it continues to be the best so it would have to be Brentford I've picked one from each league that both sort of tick, well, they all tick a mixture of footballing and personal reasons. 
Bristol City in the Championship, partly because it's my favourite city in the world, not including London, which is where I'm from. Uh, and God, it'd be fun to live in Bristol and I would love to live in Bristol at some point in my life again after being at uni there. Um, I think they are as, as healthy as an EFL club can be in terms of like off the field foundations and structures and just general... And you love Disco Dean as well. General health. I love Dean Holden, obviously. That would be great. Um, and I think there's there's obviously, for, for footballing reasons, you've got... A, you're in good nick. You're not a million miles away from the top of the championship anyway. And if you do a good job, that means getting Bristol City into the, the top division uh, for the first time. So there's a chance of real glory as well, which is exciting, uh, as well as a wonderful city to live in. Uh, then I've got AFC Wimbledon in League One. Um, the personal reason is I could walk to the stadium because uh, it's very close to where I live. Very similar to my late Orient pack. And it's a new stadium as well, which is exciting and that bodes well for the future. It's a, it's a team, a club that's growing. I think, you know, without wanting to get too sentimental, it's a club that's clearly got a pretty special mentality owned by the fans, uh, a, a fan base with a, a mixture of real ambition uh, and also a patience and understanding, I think more so than some sets of fans, just because they've had, they they've, been running the club they know what it is you know to 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 run a football club and the various issues that you have in doing so um there's a great bond between the team and the staff and the fans um and they've got a real focus on on youth development and buying young players and developing them as well i think they've got the youngest average age i saw uh, in league one this season so wimbledon and then in bradford in bradford in league two is bradford bradford city uh, fairly loose family ties but my aunt and uncle lived there for a long time and I used to go and visit and it was a really special community where they lived and from a football perspective it just feels like one that if you got it right things would really start rolling and things would really get quite exciting uh, and there could be you know a lot of success had um, if you were doing good things at Bradford City so those are my three Bristol City Wimbledon and Bradford, those are the clubs I'd like to, most like to be sporting director of. But to be honest, I don't think I'd be that fussy. Okay, that's it from us today on the NTT20 Monday podcast, which is brought to you by the Skybet EFL Rewards app. Skybet EFL Rewards app is a must-have for all EFL fans because it's free to download and it essentially incentivizes your fandom. You can win such rewards as uh, match streaming passes, as signed shirts from your club. I've seen a lot of people winning them in the last few weeks, getting them mounted up on the wall. It's a brilliant thing. Uh, and also in the next few weeks on the predictor, there's going to be some exciting news, which of course we'll talk about on the pod as we approach December. So please make sure you download the Skybet EFL Rewards app. We thank them for our sponsorship. And thank you, George. I do love a Q&A pod. We couldn't get round to, too, to all of them, could we? So we leave with a, a tinge of sadness. But I'd like to say that even if the people that George mostly tweets are the likes of Gary Lineker, that <laughs> please do tweet us at George Alec, at Ali Maxwell underscore, at NTT20pod. If we haven't answered your question and you'd like an answer of sorts, uh, or if you've got more questions, just get in touch. And we feel bad that we haven't been able to touch on many of the good questions. So we will endeavour to do so over the next few days. Thank you very much for listening. Go well. We'll speak again later in the week.